In this episode, Alyssa Baxter, General Counsel at Law Cover, is joined by Alex Haslam, a principal at Gilchrist Connell, and Sarah Wood, Special Counsel at Gilchrist Connell. Alex is a Law Cover panel solicitor who handles negligence claims for solicitors, and Sarah is a workplace law specialist. Together, they will discuss the steps law firms should take to improve their systems after they experience claims and how to deal with issues around employed solicitors whose conduct leads to claims being made against the firm. Hi, Alex. Hi, Alyssa. How are you? Good, thanks. Hi, Sarah. Hi. Thanks for joining us on Risk On Air today. Um, At Law Cover, we spend a lot of time talking with solicitors about claims and the way they can prevent claims from happening in the future. But there are some specific steps that solicitors can take uh, in the aftermath of a claim, which can be really beneficial in making the law practice function better, uh, both in the way the legal services are provided, but also in the way the business runs. And that's a really important part of today's discussion, because we're focusing not just on the legal work that gets done in the law practice, but on what you might call the business aspects of running a law practice. So, Alex, in the aftermath of a claim, when the litigation is over and the claim is settled, what advice do you have for a law practice? Do they just, like, close that unfortunate chapter of their lives and never think about it again? Uh, well, I would say that it's very opportune time to have a debrief. Um, and I often recommend this to solicitors for whom I act in claims. When there's a claim against you and it has some merit, it's usually settled or there's a, a judgment that comes in against you. It's a really good time to sit down and just work through why the claim came about. Was it a human mistake? Was it a systemic problem? Are there other files out there that may have some ticking time bombs? So I really think with anything in life, I suppose, if if there is a lesson to be learned, I think you should really take some time to try and learn it. I think that's that's good advice. Um, Alex, I want to ask you about cases involving supervision and how systems around supervision can be re-examined after a claim. Um Can you explain the type of claim that we're talking about? Yes. I mean, I've uh, recently had a claim um, where a law firm was retained to investigate and act in medical negligence proceedings against the doctor who had delivered the client back 20 20 odd years ago. Um, What happened was when 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 the claim came into the firm, it was immediately delegated to an employed solicitor who was given the case to run without any supervision whatsoever. Now, the solicitor was clearly out of his depth and he made a number of mistakes. Um, By way of example, it just snowballed. Um, He procured and served an expert medical report that didn't support his client's case. He then procured and served evidence from the client's mother that did not support the case. He drafted and filed an amended statement claim that outlined causes of action that were hopeless. He obtained, he retained counsel, which was great, but then counsel told him that the claim was hopeless. He missed directions hearings. He attended directions hearings ill-prepared. And right at the end, right before the hearing, he finally obtained an expert medical report that seemed to support his client's case, but because it was so late, he sought leave to rely on it, and that was denied. 
So when it came to a hearing, the claim was dismissed. Here, the law firm was exposed to a potential claim by the client or a claim for personal costs. Now, that really was a case of a lack of supervision because it was clear that there was a case there for the client to be running and that there was available medical evidence that supported it. But But they'd served all this evidence that didn't support it. Correct. And when they served it, it was too late. And as you know, if you tried to serve evidence on the the steps of the court before a hearing, generally the court has an inclination not to allow it in. So that really highlights that that firm needs to have a good hard look about the way that um, the junior solicitors are being supervised because... Serving evidence really isn't um, something that a junior solicitor should be doing without proper supervision to make sure that it's the right type of thing to be serving. Um, what, what type of systems and protocols should a firm have in place around the running of a litigation file? Well, um, certainly not allow a junior solicitor to run a claim by themselves. Now, don't get me wrong, we've all, as litigators been put in a position as a junior solicitor where you've had to run cases. But a lack of supervision is something that can be very critical, as was the case here. It's usually some firms are supervised more than others, and that's perfectly fine. It just depends on the circumstances. However, really, if if you're going to let a junior solicitor run a file, then... <clears throat> the senior practitioners need to be available. They need to foster a culture in their firm where where a junior solicitor has a file of any description, in this case it was a litigation file, and there's a difficult issue that arises, they need to be available to discuss that. Mm -hmm. Now here I think it's quite clear that particularly when counsel said the claim was hopeless as put, at the very latest, that was a perfect time for that junior solicitor to go to his supervising partner and say, look, I'm in this predicament here. We need a way out of this. Now, it's then incumbent upon the senior practitioner to uh, be available in the first instance to allow that to happen, to foster a culture where the junior solicitor doesn't feel afraid to raise something That's right. where... That's need a, a culture of, of um, openness and transparency where it's okay to say, we've got this case and counsel said it's hopeless. How are we going to fix it? Absolutely. Look, in most areas of law, but particularly litigation, there is usually an opportunity to fix a mistake. And look, we all make mistakes. And particularly as junior solicitors, we make mistakes. We're learning But if you don't have the culture in which you feel you can announce that mistake to a senior practitioner and say, look, I've made a mistake. How do we get out of this? And usually it'll be the case a senior practitioner will turn around and say, all right, well, this is what needs to be done. Let's see what we could do. And in this case, it was, well, we need different expert evidence. We need to replete the claim. Now, yes, that may have certain cost ramifications, but at the end of the day, it doesn't mean it means that the the client's claim doesn't drop off, doesn't expose mm-hmm. you. So, 
it's really fostering a culture where you can not confess but identify mistakes that either have been made or difficult issues that are arising and you feel out of your depth that you are then at liberty to approach a senior partner and say look I'm sorry I just don't know what's going on here can you please help me I think we've all had those matters where something goes wrong and it seems to snowball and more things go wrong with it certainly when I was a junior solicitor I had um I worked in a firm where there were two particular senior women who had a practice every couple of months of swapping their hardest file because everyone gets a file where they have a mental blank and they they hate it, they don't want to look at it anymore and that's when files get neglected, problems aren't dealt with properly. And so they actively took each other's hardest file because when a new set of eyes come on a file you can sometimes see the problem much more clearly and get it fixed much more quickly. That's right. I think um, it's often good to have another set of eyes on a file if that's a peer or whether that's someone more senior than you. But I think it's certainly in the case that I was discussing, it could easily have been turned around if there had been better supervision or if if um, daily supervision was not uh, available, then certainly at least a culture, an open culture where the junior solicitor could have approached someone to say, look, I'm out of my depth here. What if the junior solicitor doesn't doesn't think to themselves, I'm out of my depth? What if they don't have that kind of personality? Surely there should be some more structured type of supervision. Well, yes, there should be structured supervision, but <clears throat> sometimes um, the size of a firm or the busyness of a firm doesn't allow for that. I've generally... Uh, seen what will work in such circumstances is where you have weekly meetings you Mm -hmm. can have weekly meetings where you go through not every file but what are certainly hardest files but if 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 you do have a junior solicitor who doesn't feel that they're doing anything particularly wrong then that obviously is a significant issue but usually at such meetings these things will be elicited Mm-hmm. That you'll say, oh, what's going on in this case? Where where are the so for example, for in litigation, what's the next court date? What needs to be done? What steps are you taking to obtain that evidence? What evidence are you getting? So weekly meetings can certainly That really would have solved the problem in this case, wouldn't it? If the partner had seen what kind of evidence have you got, what's the statement you've got from the mother, then it might have made a difference as to whether those things were served and maybe not caused the problem. Certainly and, and I would have thought that had counsel had counsel's advice been passed on mm. that the case as pleaded was hopeless that the senior person would have stepped in and said all right well we need to do something about this yeah we could replead absolutely we could fix it so there's another type of problem which can arise when solicitors aren't well supervised um, and the one I want to talk about is a disciplinary matter in VCAT in Victoria, um, it was a matter of Legal Services Commissioner and Ipadapo Alayemi. Um, in that case, the solicitor was employed as a graduate in a busy migration firm and he had carriage of a visa application for a client and the solicitor completed that application and submitted it to the Department of Immigration. And the department sent a letter back refusing the client's visa application and when the solicitor saw that letter, he realised that he'd made a mistake on the application. he just selected the wrong category from a drop-down menu. 
but that mistake had a fatal effect on the success of the application. And rather than informing the client or his employer about the decision and sending them a copy, um, the solicitor instead created entirely new documents and basically faked it, um, put in different reasons for refusing the application in order to cover up his error. Um, he then sent the false documents to the clients. The client noted, noticed that the document was false and confronted the solicitor and the solicitor was then dismissed and he was also disciplined by the Office of the Legal Services Commissioner. Um, in this particular matter, the problem could have been avoided if there'd been closer supervision. But Sarah, I also wanted to ask you about what other changes a law practice could make in order to prevent this kind of what is really an ethical problem? Yeah, well, we've spoken a little bit about, Alex has spoken a little bit about having a culture of openness. Um, I really think that comes out to play with ethics as well. Um, and, uh, you know, this is cultures created in a number of ways, but um, I think having conversations as often as possible about uh you know, conduct that you see that's ethical or examples you see that's unethical and just really talking to staff about those things and making it clear what's acceptable and what's not. Um, so just continuously having those sorts of conversations I think is really important. So in this particular case, the unethical conduct of the graduate solicitor meant that he was dismissed. Um, what are the dangers in taking a step to sack someone in situations like that? Well, there's a number of claims that are available to an employee that's been terminated. Uh, so, and each gives rise to a number of different things that an employer needs to think about before actually making that decision to terminate. So the two major types of claims that are generally available to employees and that would be available to employees in a law firm are unfair dismissal claims and then another type of uh, claim called general protections claims. Now, the unfair dismissal claims have an income cap, so they're only available to staff who earn under $153,600. That's the current cap. Um, that cap changes that would at cover the end a of lot the financial of, year. That would cover a lot of junior solicitors. It would, yes, yep. It doesn't include super, it doesn't include bonuses, that's a, a base rate, so mm -hmm. it absolutely would. And when terminating or considering terminating an employee who falls under that cap, an employer needs to think about a range of things and not just the conduct that's occurred. So the conduct that's occurred can be a valid reason for a termination and there must be some conduct and a valid reason for a termination. But there's also procedural fairness that the Fair Work Commission will look at and the Commission will be looking at whether the employee has had an opportunity to respond, to give a reason for the conduct or to provide some context. And the other thing that the Commission will be looking at is whether despite the conduct and despite the procedural fairness, whether the termination decision is appropriate or proportionate to the conduct, so whether there's any harshness of the decision. In this particular case, um, I understand that the solicitor was under a lot of pressure and there was one occasion on which he had collapsed in the office from 
exhaustion, um, would that have made a difference to whether or not it was acceptable or um, whether it was okay to sack him? Well, I think it, it might have. Um, and it, it's certainly something that's relevant um, and it's certainly something that an employer will only find out about if they ask mm. or if they provide that opportunity for the employee to actually explain what's happened. Um, I mean, I think a lot of employers will look at a situation of um, falsifying documents as quite a serious form of conduct and, you know, be of the view that there's no possible reason that could be given that could justify that. Sure. And that might be the case, but I think it's still important to take the step of just finding out um, whether there is an explanation or what's actually going on. Sure. Um, and then you've got all the relevant facts and you can you can make the appropriate decision. Um, and, and that's what the Fair Work Commission will be looking at. Was this person, um, you know, given, given an opportunity to respond? Um, and a termination can be unfair based on a failure of procedure alone. Um, so it is really important that employers are doing that. What do you mean by that? What's the procedure that needs to be undertaken? So it'll it'll be different in every in every case, um, but um, certainly in this example, um, putting the the conduct, putting the allegation to the or the conduct to the employee, and just asking them for a response. You know, what do you have to say about this? What happened here? Um, because you just don't know. I mean, this person might have been having, um, you know, some mental health issues that have been happening for a while um, that the employer was unaware about, and it's only after asking the question that, um, that that the employer will have the opportunity to have all that information before it, before making that final decision to terminate. Would it have made a difference if the employee's conduct... Um, was as a result of undue work pressure, that it was just there was so much work going on in this firm that the employee really felt they had no choice but to falsify a document? Well, again, possibly. Um, and I think um, that the employer needs to consider that. So they need to, to know that that's the case and, and have the opportunity for the employee to actually say that. Um, and then make a call, um, sort of having all the information before it. So if it's the case that, um, you know, there's very clear expectations about conduct, maybe this sort of thing has happened with the employee before and they're on notice about it, and so the employer can determine that, well, you know, no amount of undue work pressure really explains this or justifies it. Um, if it's a completely, you know, out of the blue, unexpected conduct, nothing like this has ever happened, yes, there's a lot of work pressure going on. The other thing that sometimes comes up as well is the employee says, well, the exact same thing happened to another staff member last year and nothing was done. Right. <laughs> um, so all of those sort of things are, you know, are relevant. Um, so, again, I mean, there's no limit to the factors that can be relevant in a termination decision, but what's important is the process, that the, the process is there to actually find these things out and have all of the factors before you um, before making that, that final termination decision. Because a decision to terminate someone's employment is a very serious decision um, and it is something that all of the courts and employment tribunals consider as a last resort. So um, it, it, a termination decision needs to be proportionate and it needs to be obvious that no other form of outcome would have sufficed in the situation. 
Um, so, you know, a warning um, wouldn't have gone far enough or some other sort of, um, you know, a counselling, a series of counselling with the employee um, also wouldn't have been sufficient. The, a commission or a court will want to look at all those things and see that, yes, termination was the only um, appropriate decision in the circumstances. Okay, so it sounds like um, there's a fair amount of judgment and perhaps knowledge about what the Fair Work Commission's likely to say that needs to be cut, that needs to come in before an employer makes the decision to terminate. So it sounds like they might need some advice about that. Yes, um, often that's the case. Um, or even we were speaking earlier about how important it is to have a fresh pair of eyes on a mm -hmm. situation. So just having um, an HR um, consultant or, or staff member to, you know, bounce things off and get advice from, um, external legal advice, um, uh, yeah, or some sort of, um, yeah, some sort of sort of fresh eyes and perspective on the, on the situation. So you talked about unfair dismissal and the threshold for that, but you also talked about a general protections claim. Can you explain what a general protections claim might look like? Yes, so a general protections uh, claim is a form of claim that's usually made by someone who earns over that income threshold. Um, it is more focused on the reason for the termination. So it is less focused on things like procedural fairness and proportionality of the, the decision. Um, and it is more focused on what the real reason for the termination was. Um, if the real reason was a prohibited reason, and there's a number of prohibited reasons, but the most common type of prohibited reason that a claimant will rely on is a, exercising a workplace right to make a complaint or inquiry about their employment. So if the termination is found to be because of making that complaint or inquiry in relation to the employment, then... Um, the, the the claim can fail. So if it was in this particular situation, um, the junior solicitor had been complaining for some time about overwork, um, that they'd been overburdened, that they felt like they weren't being treated fairly the way other employees were, um, and then this happened, um, could that form the basis of a, a general protections claim? Yes, it absolutely could, and that's a very, very common situation um, because an employer might think that there's just simply been no complaint that's been made, there's been no activation of any complaint policy or procedure, so there's no possible complaint, but you'd be surprised at the forms of complaint that courts have found, um, and it can be something as simple as an email um, to a manager, uh, you know, um, stating a, a problem with a performance situation or, you know, a, a problem with the, the employment. So it's quite a broad interpretation that's that's been taken of the complainer inquiry. Okay, so it's not, there's no kind of um, cut and dried complaints process that needs to be made in order to form the basis of a general protections claim? No, um, it, it can be much broader than that. Um, there will be criteria, not everything that someone does in their employment will be considered to be a complaint or inquiry, um, but certainly it doesn't need to have the formality of a complaint being lodged under a, a grievance process. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, 
all of those areas carry significant risk where, where an employment relationship breaks down. And a lot of law practices are very small, just like one or two principles. What if you don't have an HR partner or you don't have an HR department? Where, what can you do when you really don't have very many resources and you're thinking about terminating the employment of a solicitor? Well, um, I think that um, a law firm will need to look at a range of, of options. Um, you know, it, it may need to call on the advice of an employment lawyer. It may need some external HR um, assistance. Um, but it needs to be looking at a range of options to, to get some advice and um, properly consider the decision. Because they are quite risky. Like, this does seem like a bit of a tricky area of law and I know a lot of lawyers steer clear of dealing with this area because um, it's um, it's got all its own rules and processes that maybe not every lawyer understands. Yes, it is very, it is very complicated um, and um, the costs can be quite high as well. Um, so not just the costs of any sort of settlement or, or judgment but the, the legal cost involved um, for an employer can be high. Um, I mean, for example, um, most of these types of claims will go through an initial conciliation or mediation process before getting to a final hearing and costs even up to that very early conciliation process can be on average um, of $10,000. Mm-hmm. But right up to um, you know seventy seventy five thousand dollars, I've seen some some take. So, um, and how does yes, a con- so how long does a conciliation high. take? Like how what kind of work is involved in that? Um, so there's a there's a, a sort of pleadings process. There's no formal pleadings usually in the Fair Work Commission, but it's a pleadings type process of application and response. Um, there's usually some investigations that are done, so there might need to be some witnesses that are spoken to um, in order to get a clear view of what the, the employer's position is before going into a conciliation. Um, and then the conciliation itself um, is a, a few hours with a conciliator, um, but the preparation going into that as well. Um, I think what's probably surprising for a lot of people is that all of this happens over a very short period of time. So all of that can happen in the space of sometimes two or three weeks from receiving the claim to actually being ready to go into a conciliation and possibly settle the matter. So you can spend Um, $70,000 in three or four weeks. (laughs) Lawyers are very clever at... uh... Um, Well, it is possible because uh, there can sometimes be a number of respondents that are involved... Um, a number of different witnesses who need to be spoken to. So they, there can be some some claims that are quite complicated. Yeah, okay. So I know that um, that can be very daunting for a small practice that has a few employees um, facing the prospect of a claim by an employee. Um, and I just wanted to mention that it is possible to get insurance to cover those kinds of employment claims. Uh, a lot of firms carry that insurance and Law Cover offers that type of insurance to, to cover the business side, not so much the legal work part, but the business side of um, running a legal practice, including um, 
potential costs of claims by employees, which can, you know, be very expensive uh, and require pretty quick action. Yeah, it's a it's a fabulous resource, I think, um, for an employer because it doesn't only give you the, the cover, but it gives you access to um, expert, um, you know, lawyers who are there to advise through the process as well. So it is a really good um, risk mitigation tool. Mm, okay. Well, thank you so much, both of you, Alex and Sarah, for um, joining us today and talking to us about uh, ways that uh, law practices can maybe make some changes and uh, and mitigate their risks in the longer term. Um, it's been a great pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for having us. Thanks, Alyssa. Thanks for listening to Risk On Air by Law Cover. Join us for the next episode and subscribe to stay up to date.